Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is an ICF and EMCC accredited leadership coach. She works with executives, business owners, and their teams to help them develop their people skills and behaviors that takes them from good to great to outstanding. Senior leaders often struggle to receive honest feedback, so she works with them to challenge their assumptions, discover blind spots, and supports them in their development. She works with teams to focus on their purpose, provide psychological safety. I I love that part, psychological safety. We've got to talk about that. And elevate performance to drive engagement, retention, and productivity. She is a fellow member of the National Speakers Association, like myself, and Unlike myself, she was born in Ireland and has dual citizenship in the United States and the European Union. She particularly enjoys working with clients of different nationalities and cultures. Please welcome the principal of Turtle Executive Coaching, Irene Turtle. Hi, Irene. How are you? I'm great, Gary. Thank you. I'm wonderful. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Oh, it's just amazing that I've got an an Irish person here on St. Patrick's Day. This is awesome. So, Irene, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this leadership coaching and what are you working on today? What's going on and how did you get here? Well, I, as you know, I was born in Ireland. I, I went to school in England. I traveled in the Middle East and Africa in my early 20s. And eventually I made it to the U.S. And I think from a very young child, I was fascinated by people. You know, mm. back then it wasn't about leadership, but it was what made people funny, what pe- made people popular, what made people successful. And then when I entered the corporate world, I worked in a a lot of different companies, big companies like Disney and Ernst & Young, all the way to startups. I worked at a tech incubator as well. And then I started to really get interested in what made people great leaders, what made people, what made someone want to go work for you at multiple companies. And I worked as a consultant and I also worked for a long time in HR. I worked as a recruiter and I loved putting the right people in the right jobs. That was a a real, it was like my drug of choice. I loved that. But as I got more involved in HR at a senior level, I realized I could have, or I wanted to have an impact on leadership skills because it affects so many people that work for that leader. And I, I saw a lot of good leadership, but unfortunately I saw a lot of, of not so good. And I realized I could have a much bigger impact probably on the outside as a coach because, you know, there weren't so many restraints on you. So 
Also, my very first experience with leadership development was on a, at an offsite when I was at Disney. Mm. And I was absolutely blown away that there was a job. Our coach was fantastic. I thought, there's a job like this? Oh, my goodness, I want this job. So it took me quite a while to, to get here. Back then, this is 20 years ago, there weren't, coaching wasn't as popular as it is now. And it was quite hard to break into. So it took me a while, but uh, about 12 years ago, I got my coaching credentials, went back to coaching school and set up business. And that's that's how I got here. So that was, but that was the moment at Disney that was like a light bulb went off when you realized that you so. could be a coach, right? You could be a trainer, a developer. You mm-hmm. said what made people great leaders? Mm-hmm. Was there a moment when you were, you, you know, you talked about you're, you're fascinated with people and you said they're funny, popular, successful. But then you had this moment where you thought, well, what makes what makes people leaders? What makes them mm-hmm. right successful mm-hmm. as leaders? Was mm-hmm. there a moment in time or was that something that just kind of happened over time? I think it happened over time. I, I was I think because I worked in entertainment for quite a while when I came to the U.S., that was an interesting experience because there were a lot of very strong personalities. And as a recruiter, it was how certain people worked well together and how certain people could manage those. So I saw it from that perspective. But then when I got into management roles, I think I saw that you know, it was people's power of persuasion, the way they interacted with people, the respect that they showed people, Mm. um, and their philosophy. And I think their humanity as well. Yeah. So it's interesting when you think what people often talk about leadership, and I can remember many years ago, I've said this before on this podcast, that I thought of leadership as an influencing process. Mm Mm-hmm. But now our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you're talking about, respecting people, understanding and listening and hearing what other people have to say, and what they need. And I think great leaders that in, in business, when we talk about business, the only lasting leadership capability is personal power, personal leadership. It's not positional leadership. Mm-hmm. And you just described, you know, showing respect you know, being interested in the other person. And how do you, how do you help leaders do that today? I mean, when you work in a, in a coaching capacity and you see people have a blind spot, I've, I've run into this with people where they, they just, their heads down, it's get the work done, achieve, achieve the goals. And they, they, they treat people almost like objects. Mm-hmm. And I know you've experienced that. What do you do with people like that? Absolutely. Well, I think it's part of our culture, too, here in that we we focus on education. We focus on getting all those credentials. We focus on getting really good at what we do. And that's why people are promoted, as you know, Gary. It's not because they're promoted because of their leadership skills most of the time. So I think it starts with self-awareness because we all have blind spots. I'm sure you do. I know I do. And I don't think we can change what we're not aware of. So it's really helping people be more aware of what those blind spots are or what they, it's not that they're horrible at what they do, but there's certain areas, maybe it's 
listening. Maybe it's dealing with conflict, maybe whatever it is. So until you know what it is that you need to work on, you really can't do it. So that's, I think, the number one thing that I help people do is build self-awareness. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense when I know you do work on emotional intelligence as I do. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some people recently talk about emotional intelligence being kind of a cliche. Mm -hmm. And uh, I completely disagree with that. It's not a cliche. It's one of only two scientifically measurable characteristics of leadership effectiveness that's directly correlated to leadership effectiveness. So that can't be a cliche. It's You want to call it something else? Fine. But the first in Daniel Goleman's model is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that I do in coaching and leadership development is in self-awareness because without mm-hmm. self-awareness, you really everything else just becomes a manipulation, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting. I, I've, I've almost stopped talking about emotional intelligence now. I break it down, you know, because in the Goldman model or in every other model, there's different parts of it. And some people are, they think they're very self-aware, but they're, their self-assessment isn't accurate. So they think they're very good listeners. And then, you know, a very simple exercise is ask four people that you know really well on a scale of one to 10, what a good listener you are and compare that to how you rate yourself. (laughs) And that's your blind spot, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. You know, you keep talking about a blind spot. And if uh, our listeners have never heard of the Yohari window, uh, just look it up. J-O-H-A-R-I, the Yohari window. It's a four quadrant way of looking at what you're talking about. It's what what do I know about me? What do you know about me? What do I see? What do you see? And if we share what I see and what you see, then I can get more insight into those blind spots and start becoming more self-aware. And sometimes the combination of the two can actually increase my awareness into areas that neither one of us going into it even knew. And the work that you do with, I know I took this, uh, was it core? Tell me, help me out. Core competency, core, core, core clarity, core, core clarity. clarity. Thank you very yeah. much. That, that takes the strengths, the Gallup Clifton strengths and puts them in a kind of a pyramid and helps you understand what your strengths are. And I love this, by the way, we do the same thing because I say education, you mentioned education, basically often teaches us to work on our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, if I get three A's, a B and a C, the first thing our parents tell us is, what are you going to do about the B? What are you going to do about the C? And w- what about the positive reinforcement for the A's? I'm great at math, right? And I'm not so good at English. Yes, I've got to get it maybe from an F to a C, get it to average, I, I get that. You got to get your strengths to, as I always say, get them to below mediocre so people don't see those to the point where they detract from your strengths. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of work on strengths. How, how do you go about that with this core clarity? This is great stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's based on the Gallup Clifton strengths, what a lot of people remember as uh, strength finders. They just renamed it. Um, it really takes uh, when. I don't know about you, but when you work with uh, Gallup strengths, people, you ask people what their top five are. They'll go, oh, I'm not really sure. And let me see. It's in a drawer here somewhere. So they look at it. It's interesting, but then they really don't do much more with it. Why I love and use core clarity is it puts it in a system that people can understand. And it's colored and really dive deep into it. 
And like you said, most people are, again, our culture is focused on the A's and what, what we need to improve on. And the whole premise of, of the Clifton Strengths is if we work in our talents, um, and develop those talents into strengths that, that will make us successful. And a lot of people are so focused on developing things that you know, they'll, they'll never be, they might be better at, but they're, it's never going to be, they might get really good at it, but it's still not where their natural talent lies. So they'll end up being drained. Mm. I don't know about you, Gary, but there's lots of things I'm good at that, you know, I'd, I'd rather not rather spend not do. any time yeah. doing, right. but I'm quite good at them, but it's not where my talents lie. So it doesn't make me successful. Well, it doesn't make you great and then outstanding like what you talk about, right? Exactly. So how about how about give me an example of where you've seen a leader that you've used this tool and you've helped them see their strengths and seen a transformation in their leadership capabilities because mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, some of the work that we do and people say, oh, I need to work on my time management. I said, well, it's really not about time management. It's about energy and priority management because time mm-hmm. is there no matter what. So let's talk about energy and priority management. And the strengths ties into that. If I'm working on my strengths, I'm more energized. I've got more energy and I, I get more focus. How have you applied that with some leaders? And you got any stories for me that you can share with me? Yeah, I'm thinking about one guy. He was a, a C-suite executive and brilliant. He's a scientist, so knowledgeable and wanted to share everything he knew with everyone who worked with him and for him. But his listening skills were really uh, below par. Mm. And he would talk over people. He would finish people's sentences. And it was very much derailing him. And he was he was on a slippery slope to, to not having a job, which... Um, you know, w- was very frustrating because he's so he's such a oh, just a great guy and a really passionate guy and wanted to share all his scientific knowledge with with everyone he knew. So, so did you did you with him when he, he would he would get all excited and he, and he was but 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 I got to I got to tell you this you know and this wait wait, wait <laughs> Irene hold on a second I you know this is really important stuff and it would be kind of that like yeah. overly expressive, passionate need to speak. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think one of the things we worked a lot on his, uh, you know, his behavior around Mm. listening and so on, but in terms of the, the, the Gallup strengths, one of his talents, I can't remember if it was his number one, but it was certainly in his top five was individualization. And Mm -hmm. that's my number one. So I'm very attached to that one. And what what I did was help him see how he could use that talent to to work with people one on one and and help them shine. And one of the things that that he came across as was being a know all and he you know uh, you know um, full of himself and with the individualization focusing on other people and helping them develop in a very different way, I think really helped him shift. But also, I mean, a lot of it was about, you know, a lot of it was about the, the self-awareness. He Until we did the 360, he didn't really know right. that he was being a, win, a windbag, really. Do you find that to be a common 
challenges that people don't see themselves, that they don't have the self-awareness that you're talking about? In some, in some cases, um, or they don't realize that it's as, as accentuated as it is. And that's why 360 sometimes are very effective mm-hmm. where someone doesn't realize they're being the smartest person in the room and they're just overwhelming people. And they, I, I worked with one guy again, brilliant, but had to fight every battle, had to win every battle. And the thing was, he was always right, but he, you know, everybody, nobody wanted to work with him in the end because he overwhelmed people. And, you know, he was he was a great guy and very smart. And once he got it, then, you know, he said about, you know, modifying his behavior and his mindset and the way he approached things. But until he got that feedback, he he really didn't know how how he was coming across to people. Yeah, I often uh, work on on this with mindset. You know, the mindset and awareness are very uh, interconnected and using mm-hmm. Carol Dweck's work on growth and and fixed mindset but the mindset of very smart people quite often is i'm right the mindset is i have the answer and we have to change the mindset to i have an answer and you might have an answer and let's talk about maybe a third alternative that might be a better answer but really smart people struggle with being able to give that up if they're competitive or they've been rewarded their entire life for their smarts. And their smarts are actually getting in the way of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And with some of those people, the only way sometimes you can get through to them is with that 360 where people they really respect and like and value their opinion are saying, he's really smart. But we don't have to see it every minute of every day. And he doesn't have to, you know, he basically tells us every day how smart he is. And we're kind of sick of it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, some of the work that I've done with John Grinnell on this, who is one of the founders of uh, Center for Creative Leadership, talks about these kinds of behaviors that are based on a mindset of a false limiting belief. And the false limiting belief is we often overuse some of our strengths because of our in our inner view of ourselves is actually just the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not smart. I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable. I'm not lovable. And those false limiting beliefs cause us to overreact to situations to try to prove, you know, that, that we are smart, that we are lovable, that we are worthy. We are valuable. Yeah. And we see this in smart people all the time, don't we? Yes, and, and also part of the work that I do with Core Clarity and with the Clifton Strengths is helping people see how when you overuse your talents or, you know, they can really propel you forward, but they can also really hold you back. So, you know, it's it's a wonderful tool and, you know, I get great results with it. So, very yeah, we, we call it the dark side of the strengths right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. when they get overused and uh, any anything overused can be a challenge. So where, where are you going with all this today? How are you helping executives or continue to help executives as leaders to become better leaders, great leaders? Because, you know, I 
I'm going to, I'm going to say it because you, you, I, I can see it in some of the things you try to stay away from this word, a bad leader, but I'm going to say it because I get rid of bad bosses. That's, that's my, you know, my mission in life to get rid of bad bosses by trying to make them good bosses into great leaders. Mm-hmm. And as you say, outstanding leaders, I love that taking it to a whole nother level. What, what are some of the fun things you're doing with people now to help overcome some of this stuff and be better? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing a lot more team coaching as mm-hmm. opposed to just coaching the leader. Have you ever worked, Gary? I'm sure you have with a, an executive, but you know, he's just part of this system that may be broken. Mm-hmm. And being able to work with the whole team is is it's very challenging, I have to say. It's much more challenging, I think, than just working with one person. But again, you can have su- such a, a bigger impact. So I'm really excited about working, doing more team coaching. Where what does that look probably- like? Tell me, tell me a little bit about what a te- your, the kind of the typical, you bring the executive team together. What does that process look like? What do you, what do, you do with them? Yeah. Well, first of all, they have to want you there. Right. <laughs> Where's the big, a big Who wouldn't issue? want you there, Irene? Come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that goes without saying, Gary, but no, yes. truthfully, um, you know, often they're thinking, oh, who's this person going to come and tell us what to do? Well, the whole premise of team coaching is we're not going in there as a consultant to tell them to do anything. Often we might be working, I might be working with the leader or some of the team members, but with team coaching, we're really working with the team as a system. Mm. So just about everybody works in a team or they're working on a team, not necessarily as a team. And just like, you know, the Lakers or the Dodgers thing, as I'm in Los Angeles, they wouldn't dream of getting up in the morning and not having a team coach teams form and develop and exist. And they do it haphazardly and randomly without, in some cases, um, a lot of pre-planning or thought. So it's really, what are they there to accomplish? What's their purpose? And do they all know what the purpose is and can they all articulate it? And is it the same? Because often it's not. And, you, you know, I, I mentioned psychological or you mentioned psychological safety. Um, that's one of those words, almost like emotional intelligence that I, I, I don't use overly because it's really providing safety for a team. I, I know I've been part of teams where the leader has said, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that, even though it's the elephant in the room or Um, you know, you don't really feel like you have a voice. So psychological safety is making sure everybody on the team has a voice, feels safe, um, doesn't feel there's a threat if they speak their mind. How do you help them feel safe? When you do this team coaching, what are some of the things that you do to help them feel safe? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of it starts with the diagnosis, if you like, or even the discovery Mm. of um, what's going on with the team. You can't just come in and go, okay, we're going to, we're going to work on this. You have to sort of see what's going on. You know, is there, is there a trust issue there? Do, 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 you know, is, is there something going on between the team members or 
Are they working with their stakeholders? Do they even know who their stakeholders are? So really to, again, to what you do is you have to, first of all, find out what's going on and what the issues are. So building trust, obviously, if there isn't any there is a tall order. Yeah. So, you know, it may be that this team isn't coachable. Yeah. Um, maybe they're not ready for coaching yet. Maybe they need to do some, you know, trust building before they can even do some team coaching. So it depends on every team. But I think the contract, if you like, with them, even having the conversations about is there trust on the team or what are you afraid of? It's having those conversations that maybe they've never had before or encouraging them to have conversations that need to be had. So I have a question about the whole thing around trust, because one of the things you talked about in individual coaching was Mm self-awareness. Well, let's talk about team awareness. Mm -hmm. And when, when we, when we work with teams and we share our strengths, we share our emotional intelligence, we share our assessments and our and our perspectives on each other, then it, it starts to expand our understanding of our self-awareness and the self-awareness of each member on the team, which then expands the awareness and the ability of the team to excel because we focus on strengths, right? Yes. And I think that when we ask people to do things that they're not good at and they don't, they don't do well or they fail at it, that diminishes trust because competency is one area of trust, mm-hmm. right? Well, we do this kind of in the blind a lot of times on teams, don't we? You're in charge of accounting, so give us a spreadsheet on X, Y, and Z. And you might be a great accountant, but be a horrible person putting a spreadsheet together. But we ask you to do it and you do a bad job. That could reduce trust, mm-hmm. right? Now, I will also say this. One of the things that we do when I, when I ask you, how do you, how do you build, uh, you know, how do you start with building trust and make it safe? One of the things that we do in our leadership programs on the very first day I walk in and being in the military, I take a little bit of a military approach to this and a boot camp. We have our leadership boot camp, three and a half days. And right in the beginning, I tell people everything that's said in this room is confidential. Now, if you can't live with that, you need to leave the room now. But I want you to know that if you say something to somebody outside this room about what goes on in this room and I find out, you will be kicked out of the program. And I make it really clear that that to create that safe space so people can open up and be vulnerable and and allow themselves to show their blemishes so that we can become more self-aware as an individual and as a team – they have to feel safe that it's not going to get out to the world. They're not going to see it in a tweet someday. Mm-hmm. Do you do that with your teams? Do you have those guidelines? Well, what I was saying earlier was that, you know, working with a team, it, it's part of the contract. Now, you uh, you approach a more uh, military style. <laughs> Mine's probably not quite the same as that because I don't think it would work for me. Um uh-huh. But it's, it's that contract of what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, what's okay, what's okay to say, what's not okay to say. So, you know, it, it's, it's building that safety, building that trust in a team is like building awareness in the individual coaching. And it doesn't happen by osmosis. Otherwise, all teams would be great and high functioning. 
it's how, especially working with people who whose communication is not always their top their top talent. It's encouraging them rather than forcing them to have those conversations about what's preventing the trust, mm-hmm. what what behavior is going to be okay in that team environment. Now, sometimes you're working with a team that's just forming and that's really helpful because the rules can be or the, the contract can be set from the beginning. But often you're coming into a team that's well on its way and those, you know, call them bad habits, call them dysfunction, history. whatever you There's want. There's a lot of history. Yeah. So helping them, you know, again, be aware of what they're doing, what the, the, the discovery, the diagnosis of what's, what's not working they may not be aware. So it's looking at it from a systemic point of view and and then renegotiating that contract among themselves. Mm. And and that of course involves the, the coach because you're now part of this team in what confidentiality. So if they tell me something, uh, am I allowed to share it? Am I allowed to share it anonymously? Um, you know, what's holding them back from having the conversation that they're not having with their boss or maybe some stakeholders. Maybe they're not even taking the stakeholders into account. So it's all of that. It's it's about having those difficult conversations. Yeah. And yeah. And again, you know, building the trust so that it's safe for them to do that. And, you know, you have your style, I have mine, but it's about – you know, we as coaches, of course, have to model the behavior, right? Yeah, and I think I think that the end point is the same, is we have boundaries and we have expectations and uh, the way you go about it, it gets there. And, and it's necessary to have a process to get there. And uh, the way you go about it, I do that with coaching. In our leadership program, I make it explicit. I just, you know, set the boundaries very clearly. And there's a reason why I use two different styles in those different contexts and scenarios like you do. So as, as coaches and facilitators, we try to draw the, a lot of that out. And sometimes you don't consult, but you say, well, uh, other groups have discussed this. What do you think about this? Like confidentiality? What does this group think? Where are the yeah. boundaries? You know, yeah. and you just kind of kind of encourage that conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my clients laugh and go, oh, you're going to talk about boundaries again. And then they start talking about boundaries and you go, you know, you're, you're making progress when they're talking about boundaries and how, how often they haven't got any when you start working with them or they don't know what they are. They don't know where they start and end. So when your clients start acknowledging the boundaries and and telling you about other people who don't have any boundaries, then you know you're making progress. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I don't care if you're talking about being a parent and having appropriate boundaries for your children, because if you Mm -hmm. don't, the the kids are going to go wild and they're going to find themselves in life-threatening situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in business, I I like to use uh, a, a metaphor for this that I learned from one of our statarians, Dr. Vito Stellato, and he says, Boundaries are necessary. Think of yourself on a 40-story building, and it's a flat building, and it's it's 40 stories up, and the top of it is 50 feet by 50 feet. It's a square, and it's just a flat roof, and it's probably 50-mile-an-hour winds because when you go up in the air, there's more wind, 
and there's no wall, how free are you going to be to move around on the top of that roof? And most people say, I'm going to lay down in the middle of that. I'm not moving. <laughs> it's scary. And you feel the building moving and the wind is there and there's no edge. You're like, oh, you know, the edge doesn't have any, any, any wall. Now, if I take and put a 10 foot steel wall up and, and I'm on the top of that building, that 40 story building, how free am I going to move around that roof? And I'm like, are you kidding? I could play tennis on the top of that roof now. No problem. And the, the point is this, is boundaries actually creates freedom. And people often think that they're imposing expectations on people that are unfair or unwarranted or unneeded. And the fact is, if we do a good job of putting those boundaries in place together, it allows us to be more free in the decisions that we make within those boundaries, right? Yeah, and I, I don't I don't find people pushing back too much on having boundaries because usually they're coming to you with a certain amount of pain, a certain amount of challenge that's occurred because there are no boundaries or the boundaries are so ill-defined, whether you're talking about a team or a, an executive, that they're hopefully anxious to work with you to, to make a difference. Yeah. Well, and isn't that your purpose is to work with them to make a difference? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I want to, I want to finish up today. Like I finish up with all of my podcast guests, Irene. And my final question that I always ask people is if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to you 25 years ago or so and say, Irene, I got some advice for you. And you could read this letter 25 years ago. What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to focus on my talents. First of all, find out what your talents are. Uh, although I probably knew them, I just didn't have the, the, the same language. Stop being afraid. Mm. Care less about what people say about you or to you. And... Follow your instincts and follow your passion. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it amazing? We're growing up and, and everybody's telling us how to live, what to do, how to do it, what direction to go in, and so on. And I love this about, though, learning what your talents are. And then according to the model that they use in Clifton and, and Gallup, it's you take these talents, understand what they are, and build them into strengths through experience mm -hmm. and education and application and coaching and all of these mm -hmm. things. So... It's, it's work to take these strengths, but you need to know what they are in order to be able to develop them. It's, uh, mm -hmm. I, I love the model. I love what they do with strengths. Uh, we use them as well, but you have a unique way of looking at that that's very helpful to people. So I want to thank you for being on our program today, for doing this on St. Patrick's Day, and just really have enjoyed hearing you talk about how you help people become better leaders through your coaching, helping teams, and I uh, very much appreciate it, Irene. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com.